0: You're listening to Working, the podcast about what people do all day. I'm Jacob Brogan. This season on Working, we're talking to people employed in fields potentially imperiled by the results of the recent U.S. presidential election. These are the stories of passionate individuals doing difficult, hugely important jobs, jobs that make it a lot harder and a lot more important in the years ahead. For this episode, we visited Masjid Muhammad, one of Washington, D.C.'s oldest mosques. We spoke there with Imam Talib Sharif, who retired from the U.S. Air Force as a chief master sergeant and who helped reform the military's relationship with its Muslim service members during his own time with the armed forces. Imam Sharif spoke with us about some of his basic responsibilities as a religious leader, such as leading prayers, and about his involvement with interfaith projects, along with other forms of community outreach. And he addressed the ways that Islamophobia informs his daily efforts before, during, and after the rise of Donald Trump. Then, in a Slate Plus Extra, Imam Sharif discusses his decades-long study of martial arts and explains how it plays into his more peaceful work at the mosque. If you're a member, enjoy bonus segments and interview transcripts from working, plus other great podcast exclusives via Slate Plus. Start your two-week free trial at slate.com slash working plus.
1: What is your name and what do you do? My name is Talib Sharif. I am the president and the imam of the nation's mosque, Masjid Muhammad, uh, which is an 80-year community. So what do you do here as President Imam? Oh wow, so that's quite a bit. Yeah, obviously <laughs> both titles uh, yeah. means two hats. So you have the Imam side, which mainly accounts for a lot of religious classes, teaching, lectures, counseling. And then you have the president side, which deals with infrastructure stuff for the the corporate piece uh, of the organization.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about how you came to Islam, how you converted?
1: Yes. I'm going to be a little sensitive. I'm going to give you some personal stuff real quick. Um, I was born in in New York. My father was killed violently. And uh, so my mother got us out. I was maybe four. And we moved to North Carolina, mm-hmm. which is that's where I actually grew up as a child. In North Carolina, my mother remarried. And uh, this husband, eventually he was not a good husband. Domestic violence. And I was young, five, six years old. So anyway, he was going to hurt her real bad one day. And she managed to get me and my sister at the time out of the home and went to her mother's home. So he apparently followed her and he was surveilling her mother's home where she was in. And I guess he saw her from outside where she was at, and he could have shot her. He had a rifle, but he decided, no. he wanted to be dramatic and get up close, so he crashed through the window. The noise got everybody's attention, so I came out in the hallway, just a young guy. He comes through the window crashing, has a rifle. He's getting ready to shoot my mother, my uncle, and this is a teenager at the time. Maybe he was 16, maybe 15, 16. My uncle, without hesitation, reservation, he just went right to him and grabbed a gun right in the nick of time. My mother got shot in the leg. It was lined the way she was standing on her heart, but he got it down it he shot her in the leg. And then my uncle, some instinctive thinking, he just pulled back and grabbed a chair and hit him with a chair, and he, he fled after that. Now, I wanted to bring this uncle in because this is what happened and caused me. I was not a Muslim then. He, nobody was a Muslim at that time in the family. We were Christians. But I became endeared to him. I love this. He saved my mother's life. You know, and you, when you're a child, you look for models. That's why we talk about mentoring and big brothers, those kind of things, and sisters, because you know you're looking for models. You look for the best examples. So I started everything this guy was doing. He was really something, you know. Uh, so he ended up going into the military. He left, went into the military. He was into martial arts. Uh, he was my first teacher. I'm a martial art master now, and uh, he was in the Vietnam War. But like many, when they that came back from Vietnam, I mean, he saw a lot. He was with a lot of his extra friends he grew up with and everything and he lost a lot of them and he saw them killed in very horrific ways you know uh, and because course you know he has ptsd today he's still with us today but he came back and because like most of them you don't get to process that stuff there and you come back and that stuff is operating and then you and you come into an environment where you're not treated well now we know that vietnam most vietnam veterans regardless of your race or ethnicity whatever you weren't treated well so people were angry. He was one of the ones that got angry, and he began to join groups in society, the Black Panther type group. And he joined the group, this, this uh, group, the foundation of this community was the Nation of Islam, but we're universal now. And because I, and I, I loved it, I went with him, I went with him, everywhere, so I joined too with him. This is the movement that Muhammad Ali was a part of, Malcolm X. And Muhammad Ali, we know his story when it came to the military. So that movement discredited anyone that was a part of it from serving in the military. Violence was uh, something that was not welcome. Anyway, so his service—I told uncles. you, I, my uncle's service in the military. I told you what he witnessed, what he went through, his sacrifice. He's a purple heart. Most of them got purple hearts. He's wounded. He's got agent on. He got all kinds of problems he got right now from that war. All that was discredited. The sacrifice that he made was discredited because they wouldn't acknowledge. They, would, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't get support for it. Wouldn't they get acknowledgement for it. So eventually, this is what happened. The leader of the movement that was Mahatma Ali's leader changed to the son of that leader. Wallace Muhammad. He became a leader in the 70s. And uh, he was also in prison for a graft of age and that kind of thing because they wouldn't let him, Father told him not to take the country and it. But this But this is the key. He did something that nobody in America was doing. And even when it was not popular, he picked up the American flag. Despite what had happened in the history, despite that he was really wrongfully in prison, even white Americans were burning the flag then, stepping on the flag then, you know, because everybody was upset, Vietnam, war, all that kind of stuff. And he said, if you all won't pick it up, I will. He wasn't just talking to Muslims, he was talking to all of America. And imam, a Muslim imam, picked up the American flag and made those kind of comments. He said, we have an obligation to support, defend, and protect our society. And he didn't just pick it up and stand. He walked with it and let it flay, uh, wave, oh glory, what we call old oh, glory. And then he stopped and it rested on him. My uncle was so excited, that excitement came back to me because when he picked that flag up and made those comments, he restored credit to the sacrifices that my uncle had made, so that excitement that he brought back to me, being my mentor. I was a teenager at that time. I, I, you know, teenagers think about what they're going to do when they grow up, right? So I was had, had other things in mind, but because of that, I decided to go into the military, and that brought me here to Washington D.C. This community followed my career by thirty years, where I made a lot of things happen for Muslims. How did you end up here? How did you become an, an imam? When I came to the military, I joined as a Muslim, but I wasn't, before coming to the military, I wasn't really living as a Muslim. I was committed, but not necessarily allowed to practice. When I came here, I began to practice a lot. Uh, I was in the military and I wanted to be a Muslim, but it was in 1979, which is to tell you that it wasn't popular. They weren't really ready for a whole lot of Muslims uh, in the military. Mm-hmm. I'm saying that to say that what led me here was this community, they were following me in our international newspaper because I pioneered a lot of things that mm-hmm. weren't Masjid in place. Muhammad, you're, this you're Muhammad? Muhammad right here. They were following me in that newspaper. And mm-hmm. the things that we pioneered were this. We had no Islamic chaplains in the, so, in the military. So I'm one of the ones that pioneered getting Islamic chaplains in our armed forces, period. In fact, the first one came in in 1993, good friend of mine. And now we have several in all branches of the service. And um, they didn't have accommodations in the military for things like 30 days of fasting, which is known as the month of Ramadan. That was tough. So we ended up getting through pioneering that. Now the military supports as much as possible. They accommodate that. In fact, there's a letter that comes out of the Pentagon every year now before Ramadan that says Ramadan's getting ready to come. Try to make accommodations for your soldiers, airmen, sailors, Marines, etc., cetera, during these times, you know, and uh, being able to pray. Muslims pray five times a day. And generally, one or two of those prayers will come during a duty day in the military. And so, at first, I had to pray in closets because it just wasn't dedicated space, you know, where you can go. And eventually, my supervisor let me use his office and other things in the conference rooms. But eventually, we began to get space, dedicated space, on military bases. And now, almost every military base now has space, hmm. and some very dedicated. I mean, they actually call some mosques on military bases. That's, that's really something there. So we pioneered those things. They were following me. I began to be very scholarly, Began to study, Began to travel. And uh, military actually sent me to school to learn Arabic. How mm-hmm. about that? I went, how neat is that? Uh, I spent 30 years in the Air Force and uh, did a lot of things. They always wanted me to be a chaplain because I worked with the chaplains from day one. I needed the chaplains. They became mm-hmm. my best friends because they, were, they chaplains in the military to make sure just that you know, is your freedom of religion.
0: So from the beginning, mm-hmm. you were already involved in interfaith Yeah, I was involved interfaith so efforts, much, so.
1: exactly. But this community saw all of that. And when I retired from the Air Force, which was six years ago, the imam that was here, he retired the same month. So they thought it was a sign that they would bring me back here to lead mm-hmm. this community. Islamophobia hit too, so with my life had been on the line and partial to give it for our nation for 30 years. They thought it was important for mm-hmm. me to come back and be a demonstration of the loyalty and the sacrifices that Muslims have made and will continue to make.
0: You've been listening to Imam Talib M. Sharif. In a minute, he tells us about leading daily prayers and about the way his work changes during the month of Ramadan.
2: Rules and restrictions may apply.
0: So can you tell us a little bit about what a typical day is like? Is there such a thing as,
1: well, as a typical yeah, day? Well, a typical day is really, everything is, is real fluent now. Well, The day really starts with prayer, first thing in the morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first prayer, which, which starts at uh, 6.30 here.
0: Can you walk us through that first mm-hmm. 6.30 prayer? What are the steps? What, what do you go this through?
1: Is, this is essentially what happens. Okay, uh we have someone would come to open up, obviously that's that time of morning. Someone has to come here and open the place up. And then they will be appointed to make the call to prayer. And we have speakers outside. And if you come around here in the morning, mm-hmm. you will hear that call.
2: Allah. Akbar, Allah, Akbar. Allah, Akbar Allah.
1: The call to prayer is specific to Muslims. But it's not specific to faith communities because they all have a call, it's just different. Some have the bell, which we associate mainly with Christians, some have the trumpet, associated mainly with Jews. But we have a human voice. What language is the call to prayer in? The call to prayer is in the classical language, in uh, Arabic. And, of course, um, if they don't know what it's saying, it's really calling humanity to come together under the authority and under the guidance that's been approved by the Almighty, the Creator of the heavens and the earth. And uh, you have to turn to the person that makes the call. And this is where this is how your day is beginning to be focused. And for me, all of us have to focus. You turn to you, what's called the Qibla, And this is by that indication the direction that everybody turns. So, wherever Muslims are in the world, that direction is going to be from here is northeast, which is the the house that they're facing is in Mecca. It happens to be in Mecca. It's called the Kaaba. Kaaba means to make connections. It's a square house, a cube that was built by Abraham and his son, uh, Ismail. And the root word for Kibbalah, this is a classical language now, is Kabbalah, which means what came before. What came before what? What came before you? What came before me? Where, where did I come from? So we, it takes us back to the first. It takes us back to Adam, mm-hmm. our common origin. And he didn't have a racial identity, didn't have a national identity, didn't have an ethnic identity. So you always connect your life with all human life and don't separate yourself from all of humanity.
2: Allah
1: and so I'm here, we're listening, and I will read the Quran while we're waiting I would be sitting up here, and we, I may grab a book, or I may put it up on my telephone. You know, they got the Qur'an you can download now, and I'm sitting there reading. Reading silently? Or reading outland. silently, silently, silently. I would make two extra uh, units of prayer. You know, when we pray, Muslims they have a, have a series of movements from standing, and they ended up prostrating, and then sitting. Uh, so I would do two voluntary units before the mandatory prayer. And, and then I wait, and then when everybody gets in, it's about that time that we say, then we give another call that says, it's, it's time for prayer now. We're ready to pray, everybody line up. And when they get shoulder to shoulder, I go up front.
0: How many people are usually And uh, In
1: the morning, morning morning's a smaller group because in the morning, it's maybe less than 20 mm-hmm. uh, in the mornings, unless it's the weekend, maybe a little more on the weekends, but obviously during the week, it's a little shorter because of traffic and everything in, mm-hmm. the, in the distance. And then after that prayer, I will do a very short presentation you know, something inspirational. When Muslims pray, the prayer that I'm speaking about, when we do the series of movements, we're actually reading the Holy Quran in a classical language. So some of them might not know what I said. I might speak about or educate on something that I read from the Quran. Very short, though, very short.
0: Just a few minutes?
1: Yeah, just just a few, and just to get things moving. And then, and then of course, people will disperse after that to try to get to work and everything, because, again, I'm already at work, unless I need to go back and prepare to... Because uh, I, I, I will come in the mornings, if I don't have a meeting right away, I will come a little more loose in terms of my dress. Mm-hmm. And if I have to have a meeting, then I may leave to go home. I don't. I won't bring that suit with me. I'll go back and change and everything, and then go make some meetings. If it's a loose day, a uh, dress-down day, Obviously, I stay, I go to the office, and I immediately start going through my inbox. Mail that's been coming in, and I look at my telephone messages that I have in the mail, and then obviously start responding to those things. And I look at my appointments, see what kind of appointments I have to begin to plan my day, okay? Uh, We just had a prayer, which was the third prayer of the day. What time was that at? And that took place around 2.30. And uh, so the next prayer would take place close to 5. And so that takes time. So that's obviously clocked into every single day. I have to take time to make prayer. And you'll see several, like they got some small lines here now while we're here, but you'll see many lines lined up here when the actual prayer time comes in. These are people now, the period for prayer is still in, so they just missed the group prayer, so they're making that prayer now. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's something that happens. The other things that happen during the day is I'm, I'm greeting the senior citizens who are part of the program, engaging them, speaking with them, uh, playing we have activities here I may play cards with them mm-hmm. I may play checkers or chess uh, with them as well and I mean we sit down we eat together and the socialists hear from them you'll find it happening during the day from 10 to 2 uh, certainly I have to meet with the staff we have uh, obviously a staff that works here we have two executives uh, here under uh, myself one dealing with the external one dealing with internal and we have to look at the calendar look at what's going on after hear reports from them Today, I was on the phone. I had several phone calls where different leaders wanted to discuss what's happening right now.
0: Other Islamic leaders? or
1: with, No, with not just no, these phone calls, most of them are not Islamic leaders. Mm-hmm. Most of them are other leaders from other faiths, Christians and Jews and others, because we were part of a lot of different networks, and they're all concerned about what's going on. And so I, I returned those phone calls, and we're kind of meeting. So that's happening during the day. And, uh, and we, we certainly welcome that because we're building coalitions of, of those who are concerned for the betterment of our society. And so we certainly welcome that. And then we spend a lot of time uh, engaging that and seeing what else can we do. And we we're speaking about the events that are going on. What are we going to do next? We have this, and we're planning for events. So that's a that's a big part of uh, what we're doing as well.
0: What time do you head home at night?
1: And uh, well, the last prayer of the night will happen close to seven, and then because we'll kind of try to shut things down at that time. Now, let me get if I can give you this, this story real quick. You see we're in the community right here. So our neighbors, some of them hear this call. And we have churches across the street. One morning, one of the preachers rushed over here after the prayer. And he was upset. And, uh, of course, uh, you know, we get complaints from time to time. I was at demographics change. People may not be here alone. They might not be familiar with the prayer anyway. Complain because they don't want to hear it at all. But he came. He said, y'all made me late for work. <laughs> that particular day, the speaker's were broke, <laughs> and he was using that as his alarm clock. Are there specific
0: times in the year, holidays, Ramadan, for example? I imagine when your schedule changes, uh, when you yes, yes, yeah, uh, certainly,
1: certainly changes during the month of uh, Ramadan, which is the thirty days of fasting. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, during, how are your days different? It's different during of- during that time. We limit appointments because we want to read. In the month of Ramadan, which is the month that the Quran was revealed in history. Mm-hmm. We try to read the whole Holy Quran uh, during that month. So we'll start reading it in the morning, and then we'll read it during the day. Obviously, when you're working, you gotta do some things you gotta do. You can't cancel all the appointments. But the days are longer because we do a special prayer at night. After that fifth prayer, there's another prayer where you do several units. And so we end up being here uh, sometimes to 10, 11 o'clock at night. So my schedule changes. I'll take a more breaks during the day because I know from the morning to the night they're going to be a little longer and then we try to read that 30th of uh, the Quran we it's in like 30 parts so if you can pick figure 30 days then at 30 days you would have read the whole Holy Quran you've been listening to
0: Imam Talib M Sharif after this brief break he talks about responding to Islamophobia and about the threat of Donald Trump Purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. You've talked a little bit about interfaith projects. Mm -hmm. What does that involve?
1: Yeah, they're diverse, and that's that's good, because we have various relationships, and they're not all, they just come together and understand each other. They're not all like that. Some are like that, where we want to talk about how can we share where we are common, and then how can we share where we are different without resorting in a conflict and then some of the groups are more specific in terms of what can we do? We need more affordable housing. How can we come together to put pressure on the city leadership for more affordable housing? This is what we call, this is the civic engagement piece of interfaith. Mm -hmm. And then we wanna know, we got homeless people in the city. What can we do to help the homeless? And then we got veterans who are homeless. Uh, We have seniors who the taxes are getting real high. What can we do to help put pressure to give them some relief. So these are, these are social things to try to bring about. So a lot of that interfaith mm-hmm. action isn't just about working for collective understanding, but working uh, for the practical common exactly, good. Exactly, exactly. And I'm the president of the Interfaith Conference. Now, it mainly started to understand each other. What do, what do we have in common? You know, so it went from there to what can we do together now? OK, we can come together and meet and talk together. But how can we begin to work together and share more? We just did an interfaith concert. We also do awards every year where we find someone of, any, of one of the faiths that's been instrumental in helping those outside of his faith uh, in the society. Mm-hmm. And we just did that recently. And of course, yes, we have to deal with uh, terrorism and then stigmas that are attached to that, phobias, uh, atrocities around the world, et cetera.
0: How do you respond to those stigmas, the belief that so many have that Islam is linked to terrorism. And that must be a big part of what you have to yeah,
1: do. Yeah, let me give you this, here. It really is consistent with what I did when I was in the military. Let me give you an example. I was in the military when 9 11 affected our life uh, yeah. so tragically. In the military, because they are just reflection of society. So if we, if we saw hate crimes and assaults and verbal attacks outside the military, then certainly we're going to see some of those things inside the military. A part of the mission that I was on. Was um, protecting our uh, soldiers, sailors, airman, marines who were right on the front line, and we had uh, many of the nationals that were of Arab descent. Some were Muslim, some weren't even Muslim. They were just Arab descent. And but, they, but Arab was demonized. Muslim was demonized, and so some of the military people began to make disparaging comments, began to make them feel uncomfortable. In the environment the people that they were the people the with. people that they were working with they were working, we were on the same team you know doing the same thing but this is how significant it was it affected them so much that their production began to go down and this is why it's dangerous even in our society to accept that to allow that because that means that every citizen can't be healthy to make the nation that country that they love better because they're not going to give their 100 percent so their 100 it went down so the commander came to me he asked me he said sharif do something about this. They knew I was engaged, and I knew I was a Muslim, and I was educating. I was doing a lot of programs in the military. And uh, so my mind said, what you want me to do, sir? <laughs> you know, and, uh, But what I decided to do was this, and this is, this is what we do. I decided to do an education campaign. This was to educate them on what Muslims were doing, how they have been serving this country that we love for so long. And I put a list together of people this was a military environment, so I wanted to make sure I had a strong impact. At the top of the list, and this gave you an idea how the rest of it went. at the top of the list, the command in chief for our military was President Bush at the time. The doctor, his number one doctor, was a Muslim,
0: mm.
1: a Muslim, and he just happened to be of, a, of an immigrant descent. was he, our, our command in chief had given his life to this person for to protect it, to service his life. You see. So this is what we do. We try to find out how can we best educate our population on who we are and how we all have made our society stronger or how we can weaken it by not working together to make sure that we all are comfortable in the environment that we call home. In the last year or more, though, Donald Trump's rhetoric uh, Mm
0: -hmm. against Muslims Mm -hmm. has really amped up. and, And I think amplified the volume of some of that hatred, probably made it harder to Mm -hmm. ignore. How has that rhetoric affected the work that you do in your community and with other communities?
1: It affected my work, and uh, I have to speak more. Certainly, we have to shape sermons, Mm -hmm. have to be shaped to help get the people uh, more assurances, more faith, hope, uh, because some just don't, they lose hope. Uh, so I have to be more engaged in that. I have to be more uh, engaged in, in setting up panels to discuss it, educational panels. And we do, we've done a lot of those, and we're going to do many, many more. I have more meetings now with so many different groups now that want to know what else can we do. Are there ways that you are working to make sure that members of your community are safe? Yes, we've done a lot of things. I, I, I'm really grateful that we work with MPD. We've actually had them come here, the, the Metropolitan Metro Police Department, FBI. The uh, director uh, of Bates, right here in DC, he came here. Did a town hall from right here. Uh, The US attorney came here. So we create partnerships with them and to help debrief us on what we can do and how to respond and how they can help us. Uh, because that's what everybody want to know, you know, we don't want them to fear them and not be able to respond We want them mm-hmm. to see us in partnership because when something's wrong you think police you think law enforcement you know I mean because we don't have the authority to do certain things So it's important for us not to see them as enemies and uh, so we engage and uh, we speak to them And we meet with them on a regular basis to get updates on things on what we can and can't do If we've seen something we communicate. It. most of the arrests that they may have come from Muslims. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's, a, that's a fact and because of relationships. So those are the kind of things we're doing. We have the officer. We had to enhance our security here, cameras, uh, you see the windows. Those are things that are recent in history, actually. Uh, you know, we had threats. We've had telephone threats. We've had letters threats through, through mail, uh, on email, I'm speaking somewhere. If it's a social piece, you've got some people in the trail. They say things that are threatening. What's it like to and, uh, get a threat like that? How do you feel? when
0: something like that shows up in your inbox or well, you I a phone it's, it's, it's,
1: it's, I, I, call? Well, obviously, it's, it's hurtful. You know, I'm a citizen, just like that person that's speaking as a citizen. We, we We're in this together. This is our country. It's not his. It's not mine. It's ours. And I know they don't know. They can't know me. You know, they can't know this community. They can't know the history. And most of them are just ignorant. And that's what we're finding. I mean, I've served this nation. I'm just one of many. And that was just the field where you have to put your whole life on the line for the whole country. Uh, and they obviously don't know that to so make the kind of comments. And then they say to go home, this is home. What are you talking about? You know, most of the people here, they're second, third, fourth generation now. This is home now. There's no other home. What are you talking about? We don't, we don't want nobody to tear this down because this is where we live. So yeah, it's hurtful to hear people, and we know it, it's going to weaken us because we are stronger together, you know. the diversity is what makes us strong. They say we, we, our motto is united, we stand. Divided, we're falling. And that's what's happening, We're falling. We're mm-hmm. falling.
0: When someone, a young person especially, say, Mm. comes to you and says, I'm afraid, I'm I'm afraid that we are falling, Mm. what do you say to them?
1: Well, I, I say several things. First thing, I have to remind them that we say all day long, Allahu Akbar, okay? And that means God is bigger. He is greater. He's more important. And nothing is out of his scope. And whatever we are going through, it's not permanent. It's temporary you see? And there's that, that, always going to be more good, even though it looks like it now. And we got, that's, that's true, we have to have faith. We are faith people, so I have to respond to them and give them this faith. The evil that we're seeing, this harm, this hatefulness, it's because they band together and the good is spread out. But when we come together, we can reduce it. I give them these pictures of hope and let them know how there are many working for good. Are there ways that non-Muslims can help support you and members of your community? Yes, yes. There are definitely ways that non-Muslims can support us. See us as neighbors, see us just like anybody else, that grocery store. We may be serving them their food at a restaurant, you may be bringing their mail, maybe that police officer that responds, maybe that person on the front line that just gave his life that you didn't even know. Everybody not announcing that they're Muslim. Understand that and stand up for the life that stands up for you Early in this year. And this is what happened here. We were threatened to be attacked. This mosque right here was threatened by a group in America called the Global Something for Humanity. And they had selected around 20-plus mosques and Islamic centers to do armed protests across America. We were on their list. And they had us pick to come at a certain time. I was leading a delegation in Turkey. My community was wanting me to give them some instructions on how to handle this because we were getting a lot of calls from religious leaders because we got great partnerships. And they wanted to come over here and say, we'll be there and stand with you. We'll make sure that they don't even come near you, this and that. And my instructions were this. Don't do anything. I don't want us to give any attention to them. If we do anything, then we're going to be asked by the media about what we're doing, and, we have, and then we have to highlight them. I don't want to do that. See, just stay normal, be vigilant, be aware, but be vigilant. But this is what happened, and this is what we want to happen, and we don't want to have to be defending ourselves. This is an example of what should be happening. The neighbors, without us knowing about it, they had gotten together and they made signs up, and they posted signs. They came and posted signs on the trees, on the poles right here in front of my shed, in the neighborhood. So they can be clearly seen that said this is a hate-free zone we stand with Messenger Muhammad, our neighbors now uh, my team here say they saw two Carlos that fit the description fit the description of, of the these, group of the group that was supposed group. to do the hate group uh, but they didn't stop we suspect it was that group but we know they saw those signs because they were very visible and we didn't have to do anything to defend ourselves. but they were I just found out recently uh, one of the major newspapers in the city followed up on that and they wanted to talk to the person that led that campaign and they found that person and these were not these well, are not Muslims the, the, the campaign, the, 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 anti-hate this campaign. the anti-hate campaign which was not a Muslim none of them were Muslims but again we live in this community we're their neighbors they told the new, this newspaper that if they had to if that group had stopped I got out or had come to protest against us that they had all, all of them had agreed to form a human chain between us and them so they wouldn't even get near us.
0: Thank you, Imam, so much for speaking with us
1: today. Oh, I, I appreciate the, the, the honor of having you visit us and, uh, and certainly appreciate your time. It's appreciated as well as my time. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure welcome.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Working. I'm Jacob Brogan. We'd love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. Our email address is working at Slate.com. You can listen to past episodes at slate.com slash working. Working is produced and edited by Mickey Capper. Thank you to Eamon Ishmael, who helped us bring this episode together. Thanks to Afim Shapiro as well. Our executive producer is Steve Lichtai, and the chief content officer of the Panoply Network is Andy Bowers.